What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again i appreciate you asking me back so you said you were going to pinch yourself i didn't know it was that kind of show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, uh, hey man what's up guys this is homicide oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Steel 
This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, and you are listening to episode number 282 of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast, a podcast that you can catch two times a week and download from wherever you get your podcast from, whether it's iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, Podbean, or Podomatic.com. You'll never know who's going to be on the other end of the line of the two-man power trip of wrestling. And now you can also add onto your podcast listening plate. Every Monday on the IRW Network, you can download the brand new Triple Threat podcast featuring the franchise Shane Douglas and the two-man power trip of wrestling with brand new episodes coming every single Monday to the IRWnetwork.com. It's a show filled with very fun topics, games, stories, Ask Franchise Anything, and so much more. So get on over to the IRW Network every Monday to download the Triple Threat Podcast. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today we're so incredibly pumped to welcome the host of What Happened When on MLW Radio, and a guy who's now venturing out into the world of the live show as well, as the one and only voice of WCW, the voice of Monday Nitro, Tony Schiavone joins the program, and this coming Sunday, July 9th in Dallas, Texas, at the Three Links, you can catch Tony Schiavone's What Happened When Live, a live show that has a lot of fan interaction and is going to be one hell of an afternoon. You can head to TicketFly for tickets. It's a 3 p.m. start time. It's a two-hour show, and it's going to have a lot, and I mean a lot, of fan interaction and a lot of great things that you always wanted to know from Tony Schiavone. Well, you get to hear it live and in living color at What Happened When Live at the Three Links in Dallas, Texas, And obviously, more to come in this episode. You'll hear Tony give the master plug for that one. And this was an interview that John and I have been dying to do for two and a half years. Tony Schiavone, obviously the soundtrack of all the great WCW moments, whether it's Sting's world title win or Hulk Hogan coming down the aisle at Bash at the Beach. When you think of a big-time moment in WCW, Tony Schiavone's voice was accompanying it. And we always kind of joke about Tony Schiavone that, oh, well, this was the greatest night in the history of our sport, or, oh, this was the greatest night in the history of Nitro. Well, a lot of times he was dead on, and it was very easily topped by WCW on a weekly basis at that point because everything WCW did in the heyday of Monday Nitro turned to gold and Tony Schiavone literally at ringside right there to see all of it going down. And it was an absolute pleasure to be able to speak with Tony Schiavone, a guy that I personally loved in his time in the WWF. Although it only lasted one year, it was a great year because he was behind the soundtrack of a lot of great moments there. He was, if you remember, the 1990 Royal Rumble, the first ever stare down between Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. Well, that was called by Tony Schiavone. And that will forever be ingrained in our brains because that was an epic stare down and the first time that we saw two big baby faces going at it right in the middle of the ring. And that was at the 1990 Royal Rumble. And he wouldn't be there too much long after that. And we'll kind of touch on why he departed. Uh, It's always been kind of uh, not speculated as to why, but it's been, you know, widely known that his contract did expire and he went right back to what he knew. And that was WCW. 
And obviously, he held so many positions in that company, obviously working behind the scenes, working on camera, and being a producer, and, and post-wrestling, and seeing what Tony Schiavone's been able to do, you can obviously see he's got a supreme talent for not just professional wrestling, but also baseball, which is very near and dear to my heart. And I respect what he's done in minor league baseball. And minor league baseball, I've been behind the scenes of how do you announce a minor league baseball game. And it is taken just as seriously as a professional major league baseball game. And for Tony Schiavone to be in the trenches of a weekly wrestling program to now go to a nightly routine like you do with minor league baseball, it really is a testament to somebody's uh, hard work and their, uh, their intestinal fortitude. Uh, to see what you can do on a nightly basis there in a minor league baseball capacity. But we really want to encourage you, if you're in the Dallas, Texas listening area, to get out to the three links on Sunday, July 9th. Head on over to TicketFly.com to get your tickets and check out what you can do to attend this live show, this What Happened When Live which is one of the more entertaining podcasts out there. You obviously, from hearing my spiel, you've got plenty of podcasts to listen to, but definitely give Tony Schiavone a listen on what happened when live because he gives you a firsthand take of some of the biggest moments in WCW history because who would know it better than their lead announcer and, as we've said, the voice of WCW. So... With that being said, we want to encourage you again to get on over to the IRW Network to download the Triple Threat Podcast with the franchise Shane Douglas and us, the two-man power trip. couple episodes in here. We're answering questions. We're going over scenarios, and it's been a ton of fun so far. We've heard some very revealing things from the franchise a few episodes in, and uh, definitely encourage you to check it out. We're trying to get that one episode up on iTunes so you guys can check it out. But it will be here very soon. Do not stress. Do not worry. If you haven't heard it yet, you will because this Triple Threat podcast is going to take over slowly but surely and you will be curling your fingers into that Triple Threat sign whenever you hear that special music, that deep purple music hit. You know the Triple Threat podcast is not too far behind, but we want to thank again Tony Schiavone for coming on today's show. It was a few years in the making, but man, oh man, John, did you pull it off again? So let's do this. Let's get right over to the interview. So let's hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to the voice of WCW, Tony Schiavone. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs. The phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. 
follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017 as we hit the road and we come to a town near you in New Kent, Virginia on July 15th for the Crockett Cup. Then follow us down to Philadelphia where we hit the Icons Collectors Fest at the 2300 Arena. So please follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017 because you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, he's a podcast host and the host of What Happened When on the MLW Radio Network. He was the voice of WCW and Monday Nitro. He's a former WWF announcer. He is the voice of the Gwinnett Braves of the International Baseball League. He is the one and only Tony Schiavone. Please enjoy. Joining us on the line tonight is a guy we can call the voice of WCW, somebody who provided a great soundtrack for many amazing moments in the history of World Championship Wrestling, but of course we also remember him from his time in the WWF, and since leaving professional wrestling, I know a lot of the hardcore fans were clamoring for his return, and he's back now in the podcast world with his What Happened When podcast, and it's my pleasure to welcome in the one and only Tony Schiavone. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Chad, thanks very much. John, good talking to both of you. Uh, I never thought I would be back in wrestling, but by golly, here we are again. So it's, it's good being back, and thank you for the kind words. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, like I just said before we came on the air here, you're somebody that fits our show like a glove. I think that we tried in many, many different ways to, uh, to, to find you, to locate you get some good contact info uh, prior to your podcast beginning. And uh, through the, the wonders of how we do things these days, it's so cool to see you back and talking about wrestling. And why we have you on tonight is to talk about this amazing event you have coming to Dallas, Texas, with your What Happened When live show, MLW presenting What Happened When live with Tony Schiavone coming to Dallas, Texas this Sunday, July 9th. Please tell us what we have to look forward to and I guess the first thing would be is, do you discuss why you have now come back to professional wrestling? Uh, well, first of all, uh, Chad, um, what we're going to expect this weekend is kind of hard to put my finger on um, because I know we have a tendency to be a little bit crazy on our podcasts. And so I just have a feeling we're going to be very entertaining. We, uh, the theme of it is going to be my year in the WWF or now the WWE, of course. Now, that's going to be the theme because Bruce Pritchard is going to join us. 
and Bruce was my boss for a year in the WWE. So now you know why I left, uh, having that knucklehead as my boss. Uh, so that's going to be the theme of it, but we're, we've got some crazy things planned. Conrad and I, Conrad Thompson, who's the brains behind all this, he and I are going to get together uh, before we go down and, and talk about what we have planned. He's got some props. Anytime that props are involved in this live stage show, you know something zany's going to happen. So, um, so that that is that is uh, the gist of what we got. It's, it's at three links in Dallas, and it's going to be a Sunday afternoon. Everything's a VIP uh, ticket, and uh, you get to meet and greet with us for about two hours. And then we're going to have the show, and we're going to get out of there. Plenty of time for everybody to go to Great Balls of Fire and see that big event by the WWE coming up at the American Airlines Center. Uh, so it's going to be just a great day of, of connecting with fans. And this is one of the reasons I, I'm looking forward to going out, uh, Chad, out and going out live is because I've really enjoyed connecting with the fans. I went to uh, WrestleCon. I've gone to a couple other events. I went to Legends of the Ring recently, uh, and I guess that's where I met John. Uh, and Or maybe it was WrestleCon. I don't know. My, I, I'm old. My days are running together here. Uh, and uh, I've, I've been going around meeting with people, and I'm really enjoying that. I really am. So uh, when Conrad contacted me, guys, and said, do you want to do a podcast? I've got an idea for it. I said, you know what? I really don't. I think my days in wrestling are over. I don't think anybody wants to hear what I've got to say. And uh, I was wrong. So it's been great, and that's why I'm back in it. I think that's one of those instances where when you are proved wrong, it's uh, not a bad reason because, yeah, the response – Right out of the gate was uh, was unbelievable, and it's very cool to see because when you left professional wrestling a little bit after 2001, uh, after everybody doesn't you know re- recall after WCW there was a very brief uh, professional wrestling company that was trying to get off the ground. I'm sure John will will get to in a little bit, but. The fact that you left and the way wrestling is now, it's a lot different than it was in 2001, and there is a lot more fan interaction. Uh, does that kind of surprise you to see where we've come in 15 years that, you know, was still a little bit more guarded uh, in terms of fan access, and now you got your pick of the litter, whether it's a podcast, a convention, or a meet and greet? Yeah, you know, and, and Chad, that's all a part of how media has changed, too, in the 15 years, uh, because uh, television's not the same. The way we watch television, the way we communicate is obviously not the same uh, because of technology and because of all the things that are available to us. So, yeah, things have changed a great deal uh, uh, as far as wrestling is concerned. I was, uh, you know, there was a long time that I didn't want to do anything uh, because I, when I first started the business with the Crockett's, Jimmy Crockett told me, he said, you need to respect the business. Uh, and so I tried to, and I tried not to divulge any secrets. But then the more I looked online, the more I looked on YouTube, the more podcasts I listened to, the more people I talked to, I thought, well, heck, uh, everything's out in the open now. Uh, so uh, why not give it a shot? And, and I like to feel that I'm very honest about everything that I say that happened. Uh, but I also like to be uh, irrever- irreverent, funny, entertaining, uh, and, and and basically silly, too, because uh, my humor has always been, anybody that really knows me, I have the humor 
uh, and the uh, the humor of a 14-year-old kid. Uh, I like juvenile humor. Uh, I like telling crass, dumb jokes, silly stuff. I love Monty Python. I love that humor. So, and I know I'm going on and on here. I probably sound like Jr. I keep going on and on and on. Uh, but I, 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 I like to be, I like to be funny. I like to be completely different to everybody. And, and I like to be honest in the way I am. So when I saw that everything was out in the open with wrestling and I saw the different, many different avenues, I thought, you know, why not, uh, go into it? But I think we all agree, uh, John and Chad, I think you both would agree that, uh, television has changed a great deal and entertainment has changed a great deal. Communication has changed so much. And I think it was inevitable that the wrestling business would change with that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And where you spend a majority of your time since professional wrestling uh, in minor league baseball, you can even see how that's evolved over 15 years from kind of being somewhat of a simple, uh, regular event to now, you know, the minor league baseball to, uh, stadiums have set the pace for what the major league baseball stadiums are doing now. And that is a little bit of a parallel to wrestling because a lot of things going on in the WWE kind of mimic what's going on on the independent scene, but that's a completely different story uh, for a different day. But if, let's kinda, if we look at the podcast, per se, and what you guys do when you single out an event and you kind of give your own personal take on it and things that may have gone on you know, in the back or uh, in front of the camera, what? now is that what really drew you to doing it was being more situational rather than something you know, maybe kind of like this where it's uh, more cut and dry and just a question, answer, question, answer kind of podcast? Uh, I think, uh, yeah, being situational is what drew me to it because I have a lot of memories, and a lot of those memories that I have are really very deep. And now that we're going back and doing one event at a time or doing one subject at a time, and I go back on the network, the WWE network, and watch that event, it brings back memories of some of the things that happened. What everybody wants to hear from me is what happened behind the scenes and some of the great stories that happened, like when Barry Windham got me drunk or the, the escapades with Klondike Bill and me traveling with him. They want to hear those stories because, you know, that's the behind the scenes, pulling back the curtain stuff that people want to hear. And I have a lot of things that happened in my life in wrestling that people did not see. And a lot of the stuff that happened in the backstage area or away from the ring in wrestling is who I really was. I really wasn't the person that you saw on TV, with the exception of I was a very big wrestling fan. Uh, I loved the sport, despite what, for some reason, got out there uh, years and years ago that I hated the sport. Uh, I really loved the sport, and that was a driving force behind this as well. I wanted to go back and tell my story uh, of my love for wrestling back before I got into wrestling to let people know what, what really what I was all about. And uh, that was one of the main reasons to do it as well. Yeah, I think a lot of fans that came in in the last couple of years and now who, people who are coming in and seeing the WWE Network and, and not really grasping the fact that there's so much footage of your career, pretty much your whole entire career, on that WWE Network and your time in the WWF, I find to be fascinating because, one, that's my personal favorite time being a Northeastern guy, and I loved having your voice on uh, being the soundtrack of the WWF, but knowing how much television the WWF taped 
at that point and, and all the syndicated markets and all the, the random house shows and all the videotapes and all that stuff that you did, has there been something in doing that research going back that you have just absolutely wiped from your memory that you saw and it brought back that moment of when you were maybe taping, uh, you know, a, a stand-up or you were doing some kind of backstage interview or something that the network actually triggered that memory? Well, I, I watched uh, – I, I went back, and we haven't really talked about this, and we're going to touch on it coming up in the, uh, in the event in Dallas on, on Sunday the 9th. Uh, I watched WrestleMania five, and that was my first event with the WWF. Uh, and that event was, of course, at, at uh, Trump Plaza, and that was Hulk Hogan, the Macho Man, Randy Savage, and it was my first experience in a big-time pay-per-view. It was my first WrestleMania experience. And I remember uh, I did a couple of things for Vince. I did one thing outside of the door of the Macho Man, Randy Savage, with a stick mic, and was trying to get in, and the macho man didn't want to talk to me. And then Vince had me do another stand-up. And I could tell that Vince didn't like either thing that I did. So I remember that vividly, that he didn't like it. He, he went with it. He said, that, he said, yeah, that's going to work. But I could just tell he didn't like it. So I go back and I watch it, and I could tell why he didn't like it. Because I was trying to play a straight man, and that's not what he wanted. He wanted somebody to be a little bit more theatrical and react to what Macho Man had to say and, and slamming me out of the door and everything. And I remember thinking, man, if I knew what I knew now, I would have done that a lot better. So uh, that's, uh, that's the interesting thing that was buried in my brain, thinking about my first time in doing something on WrestleMania, how I didn't perform that well. Going back and looking at it, I can see now what I did wrong. It's a small thing, but it's uh, it stayed with me. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's exactly what <laughs> what I was looking for by asking that question because that is, you know, that's absolutely what the network is made for is all these amazing moments captured. Honestly, no, no matter how you get it, whether it's a Roku box or your phone or your computer, you have literally every piece of content known to man in front of you. And now I remember what you're talking about specifically, and that was a very uh, it was a very tense part of that show about WrestleMania 5 and I don't want to take anything away from uh, your event cuz it's going to be uh, it's going to be pretty awesome to hear you go into all this detail but that time frame in 1989 you know was still a very competitive landscape uh whereas now when you're coming back into professional wrestling WWE is the only game in town now when you stepped away 15 years ago did you think WWE would still be the only game in town uh yeah i, I don't think there was any question that uh, that because Vince, well, obviously when he went public uh, and, and sold stock, he, he made a lot of money, but there was no question to me in my mind that Vince knew how to run the wrestling business. And uh, it was his business. And, and, and I talk about this a lot on the podcast. The reason the WWF succeeded and WCW did not was the buck stopped with Vince and you never knew where the buck stopped with Turner Broadcasting. You could say, well, it was Ted Turner. Well, maybe it was Brad Siegel. Well, maybe it was, uh, well, at one time, was it Jim Hurd? No, it really wasn't him. Was it Eric Bischoff? No, it really wasn't him. But it went, it went at your own money out there running the company. 
uh, you're going to uh, take care of a little bit better. There was no question that if there was going to be a winner in the wrestling wars, it was going to be the WWF. No question in my mind. Now, I, I guess Impact Wrestling is doing okay. I don't follow it. To be honest with you, I follow independent wrestling more than I do Impact Wrestling now. But, uh, I mean, when I first stepped foot into uh, Stanford, Connecticut, and first saw Titan, uh, well, I was not there with Titan Towers, but when I first saw their television studios, I thought, wow, all this for pro wrestling? It blew me away. And I went back a couple of years later, or a couple of years ago, to do their uh, uh, their videos on the Saturday Night Wars, and I was completely amazed how they updated everything. So, you know, it's, uh, there was no question that the WWF would win this thing, and I, and I guess I'm right. The facility, the television facility, is it's something that if you've never been behind the walls or behind the fence, uh, it's definitely something to uh, to dream about because yeah. it's a very cool, uh, very it's wrestling under it's literally everything you could possibly imagine for professional wrestling in in one little studio and that vault and everything. Yeah. It's, uh, we can get off on a tangent there, but with Vince McMahon obviously being still the lead guy, the lead dog in 2001. Right. You know, that last episode of Nitro, which is, is so famous now for, you know, Vince McMahon's dual appearances, to hear Tony right. Giovanni now have the copy in front of him for the WWF verbiage and hearing you on in a WCW shirt talk for the WWF, was that something that in 2001 also you would never have expected to be reading Vince McMahon's copy but on WCW television? No, uh, well... Listen, I expected – you're talking about the last Nitro, right? Correct. Yeah, okay. Uh, I never expected for it to happen like that, but I'm telling you right now, there was no doubt in my mind that wrestling on Turner Broadcasting would not last. Uh, there was no question there was going to be an end point to this, and I didn't expect it to end that way. Uh, actually – the way it ended, the Turner Broadcasting people were dumber than I thought, and I thought they were pretty darn dumb. Uh, so I never expected it to end it like that, but I did expect it to end. So nothing really surprised me at that time, by that time. Now, obviously on the podcast, What Happened When, with you and Conrad, you do go into the end of WCW. Is that like a painful end for you, like to, to kind of relive that day over and over, or relive, you know, kind of, the the process of the ending of WCW was that kind of like uh, soothing a little bit? It's like ah, uh, you know, it ended, it was over with, and uh, you know now Vince is taken over. Yeah, well, you know, well, John, that that one night was was not painful, but the process leading up to that was painful uh, because we all saw it coming. Uh, I think what was the most painful part of the whole process to me was when I learned from a friend of mine who I worked with. His name was Galen. And he was one of the, uh, the censors that we called it, standards and practices that traveled with us. Galen was a good guy. Galen called me at home and said that Turner Broadcasting has said it's no longer going to carry wrestling. That was a painful part to me because I knew that was the end. Uh, we thought Eric was going to buy the business at that time, but if Turner Broadcasting was not going to air it, where was Eric going to put his product? So by the time the Monday, by the time that last Monday Nitro came, I, I knew it was over. 
I'd already had a couple of job interviews lined up. I had resigned in my mind that this was going to be it. And so it was kind of a soothing night for me. A lot of people backstage, and especially a lot of the girls who worked with us, they were very emotional, and there was a lot of people crying. When that was over, I walked out, walked completely out backstage, didn't hug anybody, didn't shake hands, say great work or anything, walked in my car and drove home uh, from uh, Panama City. And uh, that was kind of the end of it for me. So it was a soothing, a very soothing end. Uh, but the process leading up to that was pretty painful. Now, did you ever have any feeling of like, oh, maybe I can jump on with Vince, or maybe if they redo WCW, I'll be the lead announcer? Or there was literally you were just done with it and didn't even care? And even, you know, let's say Vince talked to you, would you have entertained the offer? No, I would have entertained the offer. As a matter of fact, I wanted to go to work for them. Uh, but uh, they, they didn't want me at all. Uh, I tried to contact Kevin Dunn, and Kevin never returned my calls. Uh, it was a kind of a uh, – we uh, Lois and I butted heads here at the house because she said, she said, you know, if they want to hire you, that means we're going to be moving to Connecticut. And she said, we're not going to move to Connecticut again. And I said, well, let's just wait and see what happens. And uh, she said – you have been given the opportunity that you always wanted, and that was to do something else. Uh, but you couldn't do it because you were making so much money and you had great benefits. So you've now been given this opportunity. So when Kevin Dunn didn't call me back, uh, and it was pretty apparent that they did not want me, then I said, you know what, that's it. I'm walking away from the business. I don't want to do the independent circuit. I don't want to try to go out and make money off my name and be that way, and I'm just going to walk away from it. I had a job lined up uh, in, in uh, radio broadcasting, and it was a chance to work with the Atlanta Braves, and I did the Atlanta Braves pregame and postgame shows on the Atlanta Braves Network for many years after that. I got to work with the Atlanta Hawks. I got to work with the University of Georgia. So I started doing things that I really had loved, and I, I really enjoyed my time away from it. And so what I attempted to do was walk away completely, but I wouldn't have walked away if Vince McMahon and the WWF and Kevin Dunn had said, yeah, we'd like to use you. And I think that's all a, a part of a couple of things. And I think one of the things was, to be honest with you, uh, probably because my work wasn't that good there at the very end. That could be arguable because I, I, I still loved you. I still enjoyed you. Maybe your heart wasn't into it, but I, I thought you, you were still great. You know, as the voice of WCW, I was more of a kind of a, a WCW fan at that point. So it was a little well, sad for me to see to see Vince suck it up. Yeah, well, you know, and I appreciate those comments, John. I, I, I think I was. I don't know if it was if trying too hard was a part of it, but I oversold stuff a lot, as we all know, uh, and to the point to where. I'm gonna, here's another story that not many people know. Uh, I remember, you know, this, this line where this is the greatest night in the history of wrestling line that I use and overuse to the point to where everybody loves to use it. Uh, I, I sat down with a videotape of me in 2001 after we went down and after Vince didn't want me back and after I'd started working back in radio. And I sat down with that videotape and I put it in and I said, let's just see how bad I was at this. And I swear, guys, I stuck it in. I stuck it in, and I listened to it, and I couldn't listen to more than 10 minutes of it. 
And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I am overselling stuff. And I am, I am just, I'm just dripping with, uh, with this insincerity, overselling stuff, to the point to where when I hear guys today in regular sporting events overselling stuff, I get mad because I don't like it anymore. And uh, I couldn't listen to myself for more than 10 minutes. Now, that was back in 2001. Now I listen to the network now and listen to some of the shows. And, I, you know, some of the stuff I said, I didn't think I was bad as some people thought I was. And some of the stuff I did back then I, I thought was pretty good. And some of the stuff still I don't like. I, You know, they always say you're your own uh, worst critic, and I certainly was. I was really hard on myself. But, uh, man, in, in 01, after it all died, whew. I wouldn't give you a dime to listen to my stuff. You know, it's it's funny you say that because if you literally listen to you and then listen to anybody today, you know, outside of maybe Mauro Ranallo, um, I think they would take you over pretty much every guy today. That's how much better yeah. you were then than they are now. Well, you, you know, and and that's nice, and I appreciate that, but, but here's the key to this, John, and, and I know I'm right about this. The more you are heard over and over and over and over again, the the more people, fans grow tired of you. And I think that's mm. why a lot of people didn't like me back then is because I was on everything. I did Nitro. I did Thunder. I did the pay-per-views. I did some on WCW Saturday night. And I, my voice was out there a lot. And now you're hearing the same guys over and over. Michael Cole is heard a lot. And I hear a lot of people are, damn, they don't like Michael Cole. Well, Michael Cole's voice is everywhere. The more you hear somebody, the less you like them. And, and I can remember back when I first started doing wrestling with the Crockett's in the 80s, I did a couple of matches on Worldwide with, uh, I think Tully Blanchard helped me out. I'm going back to like 1984 after we had our first Starcade. And I did some play by because, you know, I didn't start out doing play-by-play I started out doing some interviews, and then they had me do some play-by-play. We were in Shelby, North Carolina, and I did some play-by-play, and I went to the back, and Ricky Steamboat said to me, he said, you know what? He said, you were great. He said, you made me stop and listen to what you had to say, and, and I just think you're tremendous. I said, Ricky, I appreciate that, but the only reason you stopped to listen to me is because you hadn't heard me before. I said, uh, a couple of months down the road, I'm going to be old hat. So I really think a lot of that was overexposure with me, uh, and, and I think that's what what's happening now with some of the announcers. I'm trying to take up for all the announcers because I know what they go through. You, you know what I'm saying? But uh, I, I I think overexposure is a is a big thing that that hurts all announcers. Well, I would personally love for you to be on, uh, you know, some shows today and be over, quote unquote, overexposed and oversaturated because uh, definitely miss you, you know, calling some action. I used to love that you were on Nitro, Thunder, Saturday Night, you know, all the pay-per-views. And, you know, the, that line, the, the greatest night in the history of our sport, sometimes, and, and, you know, you might think I'm wrong, but sometimes it really was when you get a guy like uh, Hogan versus Goldberg and, you know, right. uh, on a nitro in Atlanta in front of 45,000 people on a Monday night. Yeah. I, you know what I want to do? I want to go back. Uh, I'll never do this, but I want to go back and just listen to all the nitros. I've listened to most of the pay-per-views now. I don't think I said it that much on the pay-per-views. Uh, I think I said it on nitro a lot and thunder a lot. I like to go back and just kind of tally mark all the times I said it. See how many darn times I did say that line. Uh, it may not be as much as we think, 
uh, and it's hell, it may be more than we thought. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, we did have some real big events. I don't think there's any question. Uh, the uh, the podcast that we have out right now, which is talking about Bash at the Beach, when Hogan turned heel, that was an historic night in wrestling. If you think about what Hulkamania was and where he was and the big star he had become, and he had turned heel. I don't know if you guys have gone back and watched that interview that he did in the ring when he turned heel that night uh, with Hall Nash. That was a tremendous heel interview. And that was, I mean, I, I went back and watched it. I'm thinking, wow, this is really well done. When you think about what Hulkamania was and what now he was doing. So that was a historic night in wrestling. It really was. And Goldberg beating Hogan was an historic night in wrestling. So uh, there were some big historic nights, uh, but as Conrad said, <laughs> he said, yeah, I don't mind you talking about those being the, the biggest night in the history of wrestling, but when you call the Prince Iakea match the biggest night in the history of wrestling, then that's going too far. I don't remember that, <laughs> but that's just, that's just Conrad trying to be funny. Oh, I bet he's being uh, sarcastic there. I don't remember. Oh, that yeah. I literally, yeah, right. I literally have every uh, Nitro on, uh, oh, well, at one point in VHS, now it's on DVD. But, uh, uh, you know, I've seen them all, and I've watched all the pay-per-views. So I don't remember that one. But there was definitely some huh. uh, big moments in WCW, like you could say that with. And Bash of the Beach 96, for instance, is one of those times where it's like you remember where you were. It's almost like, uh, you know, for the older generation, where were you when uh, JFK got shot? Well, this right. generation like, where were you when Hulk Hogan turned heel? What was right. it like, you know, in the building that night? You, you know, even Heenan had a little bit of a flub. What side is he on? So what was it like? Was right. there, like, general, like, tension in the air that night? Because it felt like, you know, watching it through the through the TV, watching it pay-per-view, that it was a pretty, you know, crazy tension going on. Yeah, I think the tension was is that we all were really unsure. Now, I say we all. I'm talking about the announce crew, me, Heenan, and Dusty. We all were really still unsure as to what was going to happen. I think we all had thought that uh, maybe Bret Hart uh, would be the, the, the guy. I had thought that maybe Sting, in my own mind, uh, that Sting would be part of the, uh, the third man, so to speak, and that was you know the hostile takeover that night. Uh, there, had, there had been a part of me, and it, it, uh, when I watched the show over again, I remembered it vividly again, when uh, they had that tag match where Kevin Sullivan wrestled uh, with the Giant as his partner against Arn and Benoit, that when uh, the Giant ran to the back uh, chasing, uh, I thought the Giant was going to be the third man. So the, the tension was, I think, who is really going to be this guy? We all thought, could it be Hogan? And I'm thinking, no, nah, there's no way Hogan's going to do this and turn his back on you know, what, what he has become and what he has cultivated all the years. So I thought there was some some very uh, real tension in the back. But after it was over, I mean, we were all like, because it worked so well, and Hogan did, did such a great job, and the visual of the trash being thrown in the, in the ring and Hogan saying what he said and, you know, crapping on Vince McMahon and all the fans, and he made, you know, everybody up north all this money, and, you know, the heck with the fans. And, and – it was so perfect when he said, the fans are like this trash at my feet. And that was an ad lib <laughs> line that he just came out with when he saw the trash coming. And it all just worked so well. 
So when it was over, we all went in the back, and I can tell you, we were high-fiving, and we were hugging back then because we all thought we had hit a home run. Oof. Boy, did you ever hit a home run. You know, the fans throwing the trash yeah. in the ring, I mean, that, that just shows you true heat and that they were yeah. truly hated him and they truly hated the NWO. Did you realize at that point, you know, what you had on your hands with the NWO? Because the hottest thing possibly ever in the history of the wrestling business, legit turned the wrestling business around, and legit was something that Vince copied over and over and over again. Even the, you know, the Austin-Vince storyline is somewhat of a copy of the NWO. Right. I, I don't, that night, I don't think we knew exactly where this would go. Uh, you know, Hogan said during the interview, uh, he said, this is the new world order of wrestling. And then he went on to say a couple of times, the new world organization. So I think it was kind of like uh, a fluid situation. I didn't know where they would go with this, but I knew that, okay, one of the reasons that we had so much interest was that, you know, that uh, Scott Hall shows up, Kevin Nash shows up, now Hulk Hogan is a part of them, and you kept tuning in every week to see who would show up next, and it really looked like a battle between two companies. Uh, And, you know, I, I... hindsight being what it is and armchair quarterbacking being what it is, I think they could have done a lot better with it. But at that time, uh, I think we all thought it was something special where it would go from there. We didn't know. Uh, listen, wrestling changed, especially in WCW, it changed from uh week to week and day to day. Uh, so uh, as far as a direction of what we were going to do after that, I, I don't know if we had one or not. You just kind of go with the moment, you know? Oh, yeah, and beating the WWF for basically two straight years and then kind of off and on for a bit, you know, fighting it off is pretty crazy yeah. when you think about it because Vince's grandfather, you know, was, was a huge promoter. His father's a huge promoter. All of a sudden, you know, he's this huge promoter, and somebody knocks him off the perch in WCW, and Eric Bischoff, obviously, you know, with the NWO leading the pack, knocked him off the perch. Were you guys shocked at all? Like, wow, you know, we're actually – you know, we're not only beating them, we're throttling them at this point. Well, personally, I didn't, uh, personally, I never worried about that. I, I really didn't. I never, Eric always was very uh, competitive, and he always wanted to beat the WWF. To me, I always just wanted to have a good show and make money. And I thought that money could be made with both. And look, everybody was doing well. When competition is there, everybody's doing well. And comp- that's why people say one of the reasons, I guess, the WWE is not what it used to be, where they don't have the competition that they used to have. Uh, but I was I surprised that we were doing that well beating Vince? You know, Johnny, it didn't – I didn't think about that. I, I really didn't. I didn't go out – I did not go out there to Nitro every night or Thunder – saying, we're going to kick Vince McMahon's ass. That did not really bother me one way or the other. I went out there saying, let's have a great show, let's make money, and let's leave the fans wanting more. If that meant we kicked Vince McMahon's ass, then okay, good. Uh, but that was never my, uh, my main reason for going out there and doing what I did. Now, I'm, I've caught in some flack for saying this, and even my, my co-host here disagrees with me to a certain extent, but I always thought that WCW at their best was better than WWF 
just because, I don't know, I like the booking. I, you know, I'm, I'm a huge NWO guy. I love Sting. I just felt like, you know, that Crow character was something cool. You know, are you kind of in agreement? Did you think that you guys were hitting on all cylinders? I know you said there was a few things that if you could go back, you would probably change. But do you think that you guys were hitting on all cylinders at that point? Because you had Crow Sting, who was like over so huge, um, uncensored 97. I thought the, the, the building might explode. And, you know, you had the NWO and things like that. Did you kind of think that the WCW was, you know, at the top of their game and, and basically, you know, like what I'm saying, basically when they were at the top, nothing, nothing beats them? Uh, no, I, I think that even when we were at our top, we still did a lot of things wrong. Uh, and, and I just think in comparison, and I'm saying that from a person who worked on both sides. Now, I worked in the WWF in 1989, and now we're talking about 1995, 96, 97. So we're talking about less than 10 years later. I, I still think that there was a lot of things that we did not do well that they did do well. Uh, and I thought that I always thought the WWF did a great job. And if you went to a pay-per-view like a WrestleMania or a SummerSlam, and I know that you know we only had four of them back then, and they have them now once a month or whatever, they did a great job of making every match mean something. Uh, and I thought that WCW did not do that. I thought WCW made the main event mean a lot, the NWO mean a lot, and Flair made a lot, and the horse made a lot, but below that, I, I don't think it meant that much. Uh, the WWF always made a, was always better at making stars, superstars, than we were. Uh, and the perfect comparison is stunning Steve Austin versus Stone Cold Steve Austin, or Mean Bar Callis versus The Undertaker. What are the better versions? And they are always the WWE version. They were better at that than we were. So even when we were hitting on all cylinders, I always thought we could do a lot better. I got you. And I feel like at one point, and you, I know you and Conrad talk about this, uh, obviously on What Happened When on MLW on your podcast, but sold out 1997, obviously, but the sold-out pay-per-view for the NWO, I feel like that was a bit of a misstep, especially given all the momentum the NWO had at that point. You know, what are your kind of – I know you talk about it a, a, a bit on that episode, but what, do you, what were your thoughts on sold-out 97? Do you think a bit of a misfire? Yeah. The N- yeah, the NWO worked as a, uh, as a heel group within the confines of WCW, but going out on their own, it didn't work. Because for wrestling to work, you had to have a strong heel and a strong baby face. If everything was uh, pointed towards the heels, nothing to me worked in that that pay-per-view. It was heel commentators agreeing with each other. It was always have a good heel commentator to uh, banner off a baby face commentator or a straight guy. You didn't have that uh, with Eric and uh, Ted DiBiase. You had two heels agreeing with each other and laughing and yucking it up. And you had a lot of things that just, to me, didn't work. The NWO works as a faction. It did not, did not work having its own television show. I think if it had worked, I think NWO would have had its own television show. And then where would it have gone from there? But I think it was pretty much a flop, uh, and we all knew it. Absolutely. But, you know, one thing that's interesting with, with WCW, though, and obviously in keeping with that time period, 
is, you know, they did uh, WWF, obviously, Steve Austin and The Undertaker, even uh, McFoley to a certain extent, a lot more success than WWF. But somebody that WCW was able to, you know, they had before, but then they surprisingly took him from the WWF, a guy like Lex Luger, who was so over in 97, it was ridiculous. And when he won the title in 97, it was crazy. So that was a guy that WCW used better than the WWF. What was it about Luger? in WCW that made him such a great, you know, great face, like that great guy along with Sting to go up against the NWL? Well, I think it was his look. Uh, he, had a, a, he had a tremendous look. When I first saw Lex Luger, and we're talking about even before then, 10 years before then, his look was so phenomenal uh, that uh, because he wasn't the greatest talker, he wasn't the greatest worker in the world, but he had this great look about him. Uh, and... So, yeah, I, I agree. I think we made something out of Lex Luger that maybe the WWE did not. Uh, but to put my one finger on what made Lex Luger so sensational, I has, it has to be his look. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was ahead of his time. He really was. Now, if you go back and you watch, let's say, like you said, like you go back, you watch the network, and you go back and you watch some old WCW stuff, and you're watching you – what was it, you know, about you that kind of made the show better? Because to me, like when Luger wins the title, your passion really goes through. Um, when Sting right. comes down from the rafters, you know, you really, really, you felt your emotion. What was it, you know, what, like how do you convey that to the audience? Are you generally or genuinely, excuse me, um, excited about what's happening? Or are you kind of going through the motions? Like how do, you know, how do you, your connection with the fans, how does that come across so well? Well, I think it's because I'm genuinely excited. And I think it goes back to the fact that, and this is one of the reasons I'm really glad I'm back into this and connecting with the fans, I think it goes back to me being such a big wrestling fan growing up. And I grew up in Virginia. I was a big big Mid-Atlantic Championship wrestling fan. And I'm talking about not a guy that just sat down and watched it every Saturday and watched Bob Cottle and watched David Crockett and watched Rich Landrum on Worldwide Wrestling prior to the Turner Broadcasting days, but I'm a guy that went to the Richmond Coliseum. I'm a guy that went to the Greensboro Coliseum, went to the Roanoke Civic Center, went to spot shows in the Augusta Expo, Harrisonburg High School, went to uh, uh, Richmond Arena, went to the Norfolk Scope, uh, went to all these different places, went to Winston-Salem, spent a lot of what should have been uh, money used on books in college, and went to wrestling because I loved it. And so my... My my excitement was genuine because of two things. I was so thrilled that I was doing this and so thrilled because I love the storytelling and I love the storylines that we could try to portray to the fans. So I thought that was pretty genuine, and, and I, I think that my excitement came from uh, from my love of wrestling. That night is a, without a doubt, underrated part of the Monday Night War that I think people forget because of the Goldberg-Hogan match, but that Luger Hogan match, you know, a week before a pay-per-view, definitely, you know, was a, an eyebrow raiser at that point because title changes didn't happen on television uh, at all. So that was a, a right. huge deal. But to kind of just dial it back, I don't want to kill the WWF stuff because obviously I want fans to come out to uh, to the show on Sunday. So I, I'm not going to kill the WWF stuff, but I just I have to ask sure. you from the you know the point of view of, like I said, you know, being a WWF guy, being a New York guy, New Jersey guy. When you came to the WWF, one of the things that I find very, very interesting, and we've talked about this with Arn, we've talked about it with Tully, we've talked about it with a bunch of people, Ronnie Garvin, 
that you you look at you getting there in 1989 and seeing some of the faces aren't really traditional WWF guys. Like I said, aren't Tully, Ronnie Garvin, and Barry Windham was back. Uh, JJ's in the office, and you have a real Crockett flavor in the WWF. Was that something that maybe made it a little comfortable for you to transition to this new company and seeing so many guys that you had worked with, just not even in the past, but in the last couple of years leading into your WWF arrival? Yeah, you know, uh, Chad, I, I think it, I I think it made it comfortable, but the same uh, uh, the same breath. I liked seeing a lot of these guys I hadn't worked with before. And I'd, I'd never worked really uh, with Andre, and I got to see him. And I'd never worked with Hogan, and I got to see him. Uh, and uh, Bill Eady, you know, of, of Demolition. I'd worked with uh, Barry Darso before. And so I got to, you know, Bravo was there, and I got to see, uh, I got to work with Jimmy Hart for the first time. So being a wrestling fan, I was pretty excited about working, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, working with guys I'd never met before. But there was a comfort level working with J.J. You know, J.J.'s the one that called me and told me that Vince wanted to talk to me because J.J. had just landed a job with him. Uh, and uh, so I talked to Vince after talking to J.J. and then Arnett totally being there. But, yeah, there was a comfort level, but still I was pretty pumped about being a, you know, being a wrestling fan that I was about being able to work. Uh, because I'd watched the WWE stuff and or the WWF stuff back then. And, I mean, I can go back and tell you that, uh, you know, to this day, when anybody, and I'll say this, and Conrad will say, well, you're just trying to kiss Vince's ass because you want to get back in the WWF. This is not the case. But I can tell you this right now. To me, Chad, the greatest... If, if they asked Tony Schiavone, and I've said it many times, you guys may have heard it by now, when they asked Tony Schiavone what is his favorite, his greatest night in professional wrestling, personally, and that's going to be the first night I work Madison Square Garden. By far, it's going to be my greatest night. I'd come from Crockett Promotions. I had seen the Atlanta Omni sold out. I'd seen the Greensboro Coliseum sold out. When you first walk in to see MSG sold out, there's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like it. And I'd come from kind of a small-time family operation to a big operation, and I did Madison Square Garden in the afternoon with Hulk Hogan and the big boss man in a steel cage on the MSG network. Uh, we flew to Boston to do a night show on the, on the New England Sports Network uh, at the Boston Garden. That was a spectacular day. It was the greatest day I ever had as a wrestling announcer. Uh, unbelievable. That's uh, that is really awesome to hear. I've ha I've heard you say that you enjoyed your time, you know, unbelievably there. And it only being a year. I mean, if, like I said earlier, you see all the television that was produced. You would think it was two or three because you did so much syndicated television and doing two right. shots in one day. And a lot of people don't realize that those shows. Yeah, you did MSG on television in the afternoon, and then you went up to Boston. You did Boston yeah. on television at night. You could shoot down to Philly, do uh, Prism TV. You could go out to L.A. and do right. uh, the Z Channel and do all the different hits out there. The, the fact that there was so much going on, was that anything that you maybe uh, liked more about the, uh, the job in the WWF was that you were able to hit all these amazing places in such a short span of time because it was going so global and so national at that point that you guys were literally everywhere at any given time. 
Yeah, you know what? You know, I also got to go out to London and do a show live with Lord Alfred Alfred Hayes out there at the London Arena, and uh, that was that was exciting too. I'd never been overseas, uh, and uh, that was once again being global. But you know what, Chad? You know what I like more than anything else about the WWF? I liked being a producer. I, I liked I produced Coliseum Home videos. I was very, I was able to create videos. I was able to just decide on my own what would go in the video. Everybody seemed to like my work, and that's what I liked more than anything. I, uh, you know, announcing was uh, was the moneymaker for you, but producing to me was what I loved more than anything else, and uh, that's what I love about being the WWF. But still, that one day, I mean, if you're a gigantic wrestling fan like I was, and you are doing Madison Square Garden and Boston Garden the same day, it's got to be one of the biggest nights ever, right? I mean, it has to be. So that's that's it's going to live with me forever. And the Hulk Hogan Big Boss Man Cage match, I could literally uh, close my eyes and see the superplex. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. Hulk Hogan right. hitting a superplex on the Big Boss Man kids. Go out and find it. It's unbelievable, and uh, Boss Man's busted open, and it's uh, it's a hell of a match. But one of the guys that I did not mention in that little crop. Of, um, of Crockett talent that was in the WWF was Dusty Rhodes, who also made right. his way in in 1989. And that had to be something interesting because here we go. We got a guy who was basically he was running the show, running the cards. He was the head booker at Crockett. Uh, he made a lot of people's lives, you know, very happy, but also, you know, had, uh, you know, had some uh, contentious points with the boys. Uh, but what, sure. do you, what, what do you, what you, what's your memories of Dusty coming into the WWF? Because I can also single out matches where you were calling Dusty Rhodes action and hearing that enthusiasm in your voice for somebody who obviously you had an absolutely unbelievable history with. Yeah, Dusty and I were good friends, and Dusty confided in me a lot. Dusty was a big reason. Dusty and Ric Flair were the big reasons that the Crockett's back in those days, early days, and you know, uh, depended on me, liked my work. They, the Dusty and Flair were big supporters of mine, so I was always very friendly. And I, uh, you know, always uh, when I go back and think about my career and point to some of the of uh, the people who were instrumental in my career, Dusty and Ric Flair are two of the top ones. So now uh, I'm here in the WWF, and Bruce Pritchard and I can remember it vividly. And I'm going to tell this story in Dallas too uh, with Bruce there. And Bruce will probably, you know, he'll probably embellish it to make it seem like uh, I'm full of crap, but in reality, we all know it's Bruce and it's full of crap. But here's how the story goes, and it's a true story. Uh, Bruce calls me into his office, and he says, well, I got good news for you. And I said, okay, what is it? He said, we're bringing in one of your buddies. And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, we're bringing in Dusty Rhodes. I said, you've got to be kidding me. And I said, is he going to book? What's he going to do? He said, no, he's going to wrestle. I said, okay. He said, but I want to, I want to, I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to believe. And, and I said, what is it? He said, he's going to be wearing polka dots. And I said, yeah, you're right. I don't believe it. He said, I'm serious. He's going to be wearing polka dots. I said, no, he's not. He said, yes, he is. And I said, okay. So I get home, and I don't think it was that same day but I think it was maybe a day or two later, I called Dusty because I knew his number, and I said, you're coming in, right? He said, yeah, are you excited? I said, yeah, I'm excited. He said, I'm excited too. And 
I almost said, "Are you really wearing polka dots?" But I, <laughs> but I thought it was, but I thought it was such a big joke from Bruce that I didn't want to bring it up. I should have said, "You know, Bruce Pritchard's telling me you're wearing polka dots, but I think he's full of shit," and I would have been wrong because he did wear polka dots, and uh, what that was all about, I don't know. With the exception, maybe they're. You know, there's a lot of theories out there that they were trying to embarrass Dusty uh, and, you know, go completely different gimmick than the cowboy gimmick that he had, the Texas tough guy gimmick that he had. But I never believed he was wearing polka dots until I really saw it. And uh, that was a shock. So I was afraid to, to say anything to him about it, to think this was a big rib, maybe played on me or something. I don't know. So, But he did He did wear polka dots. <laughs> Yeah, he Didn't wore he? polka dots. Yeah, and he was probably the best guy to ever put on a goddamn polka dot because he really uh, he made it work in those vignettes they had for him, you know, pulling yeah. stuff out of the toilets, you know, the son of the yeah. plumber, really taking that to the extreme, the garbage man, all the stuff that they did. He yeah. was a common man. But right. did you think well, you know, fit well? Well, with the WWF? Yeah. Uh, well, not as a guy. You know, I, I don't know. I mean... Uh, Dusty, before he was Dusty Rhodes with the polka dots, you know, the Vince, uh, he had been brought in many times, I guess by Vince Sr. as a, a special attraction and, and had a lot of uh, some matches in Madison Square Garden and the WWF. Dusty, you know, Dusty was a, you know, people forget about, we, we talk about Dusty as the booker, but he, you know, you talked about uh, Chad the Vignettes. He was a funny, irreverent uh, guy who got over just by his wit and his able to his ability to talk. So he could adapt to anything. And uh, you go back and listen to some of the commentary that he did with me and Eden, and some of that stuff is absolutely priceless. He was so funny. He was so talented. He was so uh, entertaining and engaging that it did not surprise me uh, that Dusty was able to to do well in the WWF, even in polka dots. He was smart. He was a smart guy. It was uh, it was surreal at the time, without a doubt, with all these other stars that Vince was, uh, you know, creating and, and had established, like Savage and Hogan and blah, blah, blah. We go on forever. But the last thing I want to personally hit about uh, the WWF is just the, the one night that I specifically remember um, that, you know, it was a night that changed a lot of stuff for, for the WWF fan base, and it was the first ever night that the, uh, the Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan touched at the 1990 Royal Rumble, and you and Jesse Ventura doing the commentary for that event. Now, do you remember what that electricity was like? Because at that point, no babyface has ever touched in the ring the way that they did, and obviously the Warrior was on his way uh, with the rocket ship attached to his rear end to the sky, and this is right. now the time for the passing the torch, and you were there to call it Hulk Hogan and the yeah. Ultimate Warrior. You were there for both times. We won't get into the one. Right. <laughs> That's another story. But do you remember the magnificent uh, feeling of Hogan and the Warrior for the first time in that Royal Rumble ring? Yeah, I remember that. I And I remember uh, being uh, pushed into service that day because I was not going to do that event that day. Uh, Vince McMahon was going to work with Jesse Ventura and doing the commentary, and uh, Vince got to the arena that day, uh, the Orlando arena that day, and just did not want to do it. 
He just felt like he didn't want to do the commentary that day. And he looked at me in the production meeting. He sat down the production meeting. He said, uh, Tony, I went, yes, sir. He said, do you have your tux? I said, yes, sir. He said, good, you're doing the play-by-play today. And that's how I found out I was doing the play-by-play for the Royal Rumble. So I was kind of nervous. Uh, I didn't expect that to happen. But then all of a sudden I realized that we got this, as you said, you know, this uh, big moment with Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. And I felt, wow, I'm part of something special here. And I'll be darned if like two minutes later I didn't leave. So what did I know? (laughs) (laughs) Epic night for sure. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. You know, it's one of those moments you're definitely, you know, you're not going to forget. But, you know, if I could just move back to a WCW, I don't want to kill WCW because I know, you know, obviously on the podcast, you know, you talk a lot of stuff. And I know um, music man Matt would kill me if I get into too much um, detail on WCW because I know he does a lot of help for the, for the, for, uh, for the show. But Yeah, Matt's a good guy. He's a good guy. Yeah, oh, yeah, great guy. Now, with you Sound guys guy. covering so much – WCW, the one thing that I love is that you worked there basically, you know, basically 83 to 2001. There's so many different incarnations of WCW, but then there's so many different incarnations of the four horsemen. Was that kind of a fun trip down memory lane to cover so many different, you know, aspects of the four horsemen? Oh yeah, there was no doubt. I, uh, I not only, uh, you know, I, I feel I, and again, this is not only Tony Schiavone, the announcer talking, but Tony Schiavone, the wrestling fan talking, I am so uh, honored that I was holding the microphone for some of the great Horseman interviews of all time. We remember Horseman interviews on the TBS show at 6.05 on Saturday night on World Championship Wrestling. And even on Championship Wrestling, some of the stuff that when we had a one-hour show on Saturday mornings, we remember that stuff. And I was holding the mic for a lot of that. And I feel so honored that when people talk about the horsemen, a lot of times they remember me holding the microphone. And I became good friends with Tully and Arn and JJ and Rick and even Ole Anderson. Ole, when Ole became Booker, when I came back in the early 90s and Ole became the Booker of WCW, he and I became very good friends. Uh, and so I was good friends with these guys. I held the microphone for them. I went out, I partied with them a little bit, but I was also a big fan of theirs. And I was able to see Barry Windham move into this. And then, of course, Luger moved into it. And, and it changed, you know, to the point to where, to me, at the end, they just tried to hang on to the horsemen, even when they really weren't the horsemen. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it's it's quite a... Uh, it's quite a, a ride down memory lane when I think about me as a wrestling fan. I mean, I remember as a wrestling fan uh, going to the uh, – okay, we had uh, on a Saturday, on a Friday night, there was – no, wait a minute, I'm going to get this right. I'm going to get my days wrong. On a Saturday night on New Year's Eve in 1978 – I went to the Greensboro Coliseum and I saw Kiss in concert on New Year's Eve. It was their Love Gun concert. And then we spent the night because they had wrestling in the Greensboro Coliseum the next day. And we saw Ric Flair and Greg Valentine 
Russell the Anderson Brothers. And it was four-way juice, and it was a great tag match, one of the great tag matches I'd ever seen as a fan. So that was 1978. Now we let's fast forward here seven years later in 1985. I'm holding the microphone for these guys. How great is that? Huh. And uh, so surreal. Yeah, it, it, you're exactly. Surreal is a great word, John. It really is. It is surreal. And so, and not only am I holding the microphone for these guys, but I'm seeing the different incarnations of the Four Horsemen through the through time. And it was it was great being a part of all that. So uh, it was it just it was wonderful. It's a wonderful part of my past that I never forgot. That I, I always loved, and that's why I'm so glad I'm back doing it now to prove to everybody that I that I really did love it. Now this might be impossible, but do you have a favorite incarnation of the Four Horsemen? Oh yeah, it's the very first one. There's no question. It's Ole and Arn and Tully and Rick, uh, and of course, then and, and JJ was a part of that too, because that all kind of happened. Uh, you know the the Buddy Landell thing, and was if you listen to the podcast, and you know Buddy didn't show up for work that day either. I don't know if he was drunk or it was drugs or whatever, and he got fired. And Dusty walked out with the title, and JJ, who was going to be who was Buddy Landell's manager, now was going to manage Tully, and Arn Anderson started talking about the Four Horsemen. That all happened around that time, and to me, the first incarnation of the Four Horsemen to me is my favorite one. It's the one on Dick Bourne's book that we talk so much about with Ole on the front of it as well. Great book. Uh, I, have, I know I have my copy. I know Chad has his copy. Uh, unbelievable book. Another great uh, trip down memory lane. Dick Bourne always does a great job. I have all of his books. Yeah. I mean, everyone is a home run pretty much. Yeah. Dick's like me. I mean, Dick and I, uh, Dick Bourne and I were, uh, grew up about the same time. And Dick is from uh, the Richmond area, and I'm from that area, and we both love Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. And we have been able to now reconnect, and I've got in my closet, I've got all the ticket stubs from all my days of, of, of the Richmond Coliseum and the Greensboro Coliseum. I've got all that stored away somewhere that I'd like to pull out and show to Dick Bourne. So he and I are exactly like in that. We just absolutely loved it. See, you are a big, huge wrestling fan. You know, it's not, uh, you know, not just uh, made up. You're, you're a huge fan. No, you got the not. tickets to prove it. Yeah, it's not. I, uh, my, uh, I graduated from high school in 1976. I know I'm dating myself now, but everybody knows how old I am by now. And I graduated from college in 1980. Now, when I, when I went, I, when I was going through high school, uh, in 1974. Uh, or the years leading up to that, my freshman year in high school, there were, my father's family is from Pennsylvania. And my dad always said, where do you want to go to college? And I said, well, I'd like to go to Penn State. And he said, that's good because you can get in-state tuition, go up there and live with my family, get in-state tuition, and go to Penn State. And then I, this is, this is a true story, and then I got to thinking, well, if I leave here, after I graduate from high school, then I'll miss Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. I really thought that. <laughs> uh, that's how crazy it was. I'll get to watch the WWF or the WWF, 
but I'll uh, I'll miss Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling. But then my father passed away my sophomore year in high school, and I stayed in Virginia at James Madison and went to James Madison, and was able to stay with Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Uh, but there was a time in my life, and I can remember that time when I actually thought I really don't want to go to Penn State. Uh, I may have not been accepted anyway. Who knows? But I really don't want to go to Penn State because I don't want to leave Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. That went across my mind. It may have lasted only like one day, but I do remember that. So I was a very passionate wrestling fan back in the day. Uh, Anybody who grew up with me knows that. Uh, And all my friends back then know that uh, very, very well. And it's weird that kind of like it does kind of, like that, the rumor, what people think, like, oh, Tony Schiavone must have not been that big of a wrestling fan or must not have been that big into wrestling. I wonder if it was because of that one random appearance in 2003 in TNA where, you know, you kind of ripped TNA a little bit and kind of ripped some of the wrestling holds. You think, like, is is that play a part at all in people kind of having that false, um, you know, that false nomer about you not being a big fan? No, I think it's a combination. That, first of all, that was always, that was a work, and I hope fans, well, of course, it was a work, but uh, yeah. uh, I, I think a couple of things happened. Uh, I was doing a, well, first of all, I walked away from it. I was doing a, a show, a, a talk show at a radio station in Gainesville, Georgia, and this guy called in and did a couple of interviews with me, and they ended up, they ended up being on, uh, online somewhere, and they were a very, it was a very unflattering interview about me. Uh, apparently, I was told I didn't read it, and then Enan said some very unkind things about me too uh, when we all went down because Enan and I uh, did not part ways to uh, on the best of terms. Uh, Enan said some very unkind things about me that weren't true, but I can understand because he was very angry at me, and he had a right to be angry at me because I handled that situation incorrectly. Uh, so I think all that combined and the fact that I completely walked away from it and the fact that when people wanted me to come do an autograph signing or do an appearance or do an interview, I said no. Uh, I remember uh, uh, pro wrestling uh, or Bill Apter's old magazine, The Wrestler or, or Pro Wrestling Illustrator, whatever it was back then when I first went down, they wanted to do an interview with me, and I said, no, I don't want to do it. So I said no all the way up until just recently, uh, and it's because I wanted to go another way. It wasn't because I hated wrestling, because I wanted to go another way. And that combined with some things that got out there on the Internet, uh, painted a picture of a guy who hated wrestling. Uh, I remember I even saw Rich Landrum, who I grew up loving Rich Landrum, uh, who was out of the Richmond area, on worldwide wrestling, I even read where Rich Landrum said, Shivani hates wrestling now. And I remember saying, that son of a bitch. He doesn't even know me. How did he come up with that stuff? And then I got to thinking, uh, you know, this, is, uh, this has been uh, portrayed that I'm a guy that hates wrestling, the guy that's bitter because the WWE would not hire him out of WCW. Well, I did like that, of course. I wanted to be hired by the WWE. Uh, by Vince McMahon out of WCW. He didn't, but I wasn't bitter. I just went my own way and uh, wanted to uh, wanted to reinvent myself. So uh, a lot of things out there uh, uh, painted me in, in the wrong light, and uh, I think my record speaks for itself right now. 
Absolutely. And as I start to wind it down a bit here, I feel like another thing that kind of gets skewed or, or kind of gets put in, in a wrong light. I know you've talked about this before, but it's the whole, you know, the Mick Foley thing on Raw, like, oh, yeah, yeah. or on Nitro, excuse me, about Raw. Oh, yeah, that'll put some butts in the seat. I don't think a lot right. of people click in their head that, you know, you're being forced to say some of the things that you say on air. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. They wanted me to. They did not, they did not give me that line to say. That was my own line that I just brought up in the top of my head. But they wanted me to really uh, say how bad I thought that title switch would be. So right, I did right, it. Yeah. Right. And I, I did it because it was my job to do it. And any wrestling announcer sitting in my seat that night who says that they would not have done it is lying to you because they would have done it. If it's McMahon or Eric Bischoff or whoever the producer is tells you to say something, you say it. Uh, and so I said it. And I felt bad about it because I heard that I had heard that Cactus was upset about it. Uh, and so I called him and did talk to him about it. Uh, and because in this whole world that we got going on now, where everything is a work, right? If all of a sudden you think that that comment by me is a shoot, then you've got to be kidding yourself. Uh, and for the life of well, for the life of me, uh, I'm not bitter about anything with the WWF. But when I go to these autograph signings and these guys come out with these WWF encyclopedias or yearbooks or whatever, and you and they open up and they turn to my picture because, you know, my picture's in there, they get, number one, the worst picture they can get of me to put in those books. <laughs> okay, that's number one. And, and number two, they always put that line in there as if I made it happen. He, he turned the wrestling wars around. By uttering the line, that'll put butts in seats, which backfired on WCW. Well, thank you very much. If you dumbasses in the WWF think it's my doing that turned the <laughs> wrestling wars around, thank you. I appreciate the credit, but it wasn't me. It wasn't me. But they still just, people cannot let that go. They cannot let that go. And, you know, uh, sometimes it ticks me off, but sometimes I'm thinking, you know what? Eh, maybe I did have a lot of impact in the wrestling world. And if that's a way for some of these knuckleheads out there to say I did, let them have their fun with it. So it's uh, it's something that it's something that I I don't I I'd do it again if they told me to do it I do it again. Which reminds me of something. If, if I can if I can bring this up, uh, I read something the other day where one of the uh, writers out there I won't say his name, but everybody knows who I'm talking about said that I had refused to mention something about ECW on a wrestling broadcast, WCW wrestling broadcast back in the day. Again, baloney. If I was told to say something, I said it. I never said, well, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. You don't do that. You do what the promoter tells you to do if you want to keep your job. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, uh, I said what I said about Mick Foley because I wasn't instructed to say those lines, but I was instructed to kind of crap on it. And that's the best I could come up with in that situation. 
Now, you don't think that uh, WCW started to kind of go downhill with that whole finger point of doom by any chance, do you? <laughs> well, it was a combination of all that stuff. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, think Hulk, I think Hulk Hogan against uh, – uh, Hulk Hogan or Hollywood Hogan against the Ultimate Warrior uh, helped it a great deal as well. Uh, oh God, yeah. yeah, just a lot of bad things went down. I mean, there was there was not one thing. There was a combination of things. I know. Listen, uh, and I had uh, I have a uh, I have four sons, and uh, they're all big wrestling fans. They all were big wrestling fans growing up. And one of my sons, Chris, brought up to me not too long ago, as we were doing this podcast, he said, everybody talks about you uh, mentioning the title switch when Mick Foley became the world champion. He said, and everybody thinks that you always gave away the finishes. He said, but Bischoff gave them away all the time before you mm-hmm. did it when he, was host, when he was the host of Monday Nitro. But they forget about yep. that. So, so really, you know, it's a combination of a lot of things that we did wrong as a company that uh, turned WCW up on its ass. That is very true. Now, if I could just kind of, you know, put a you know, positive spin on some things and get some of your favorites, if I could. Who are, you know, let's talk about some of your favorite guys to call in the ring. I, I know a lot of guys, you could tell you were definitely, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, more passionate for, but you could tell certain guys, they they really got you going. Like, you love Dusty, you love Flair, you love Sting. So who are your, yeah. some of your favorite wrestlers to call in the ring? Uh, I love, uh, and I think it's maybe because uh, he's a friend of mine, but I love calling Steve Regal matches because I thought Regal was so good at a, being a technical wrestler, but he was also so good at being a, a, being a you know, a pompous ass from Great Britain. I loved his stuff. I loved his interviews. I loved the Macho Man Randy Savage uh, because I always thought he was such a professional about what he did. He always worried about his gimmick. He always thought about his gimmick. He always put effort and thought into what he was doing. And I've often said the more time, effort, and thought you put into what you're doing in wrestling, into your gimmick, into your interview, the more you're going to get out of it. And I thought Randy Savage was one of those guys. I was always really into calling one of his matches. I really enjoyed uh, what he did. I, of course, Ric Flair, uh, Ricky Steamboat. I, don't, I, can't, I can't remember Ricky Steamboat with anybody ever having a bad match. Uh, he was just one of the greatest performers ever. Uh, and I even go back to, and watch some of the old stuff. I can, gee whiz, I can go back to tell you about being a wrestling fan and watching Ricky Steamboat. So I always, uh, always got thrilled about that. I was always pretty thrilled about calling a Hulk Hogan match because I knew how big of a star in wrestling he was, and it was pretty exciting being able to call one of his matches. And I mean, going back even, you know, talking about the Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden event, that was pretty exciting to call that. Arn Anderson, again, one of the great performers, uh, always wonderful calling one of his matches. Uh, I always like calling matches that told a story. I know this is very old school stuff, I, and I, I brought this up many times on uh, on our podcast. Uh, I never was the fan of a bunch of high spots for the sake of acrobatic high spots and wowing the crowd, because to me, if you if you just had a bunch of high spots and you didn't sell anything, the high spots meant nothing. So I always liked a match telling a story within itself. 
and I thought a lot of the guys like Ric Flair could do that, and Regal could do that, Arn could do that, Steamboat could do that. Uh, and uh, so those are some of the, the, uh, the, the guys I remember. You know, guys, let's face it, uh, one of the greatest matches that I've ever seen, and I'm sure you guys would agree that I never did call, was Ricky Steamboat and uh, the Macho Man Randy Savage from WrestleMania III. Uh, I would have given anything to, to call in that match. That match told such a wonderful story and such a great story and had two great performers. Uh, those guys, I remember that match, watching it, and I remember being able to call their matches afterwards and being, being very thrilled that I was able to call their matches. Amazing match. Do you have any favorite matches that you actually, you, you know, that you actually did call? Yeah, at the Hogan... The Hogan Boss Band match from the cage at Madison Square Garden with the superplex off the top, uh, it will go down as my, my all-time favorite to be able to call that. Uh, I think uh, Goldberg and Hogan, at uh, when Goldberg won the title, it's a big deal. That was really exciting. Uh, calling uh, a number of Ric Flair matches, uh, and I did so many of them, uh, they kind of run together. Uh, but uh, doing those... I, uh, Jim Ross and I uh, went to the Tokyo Dome in 1991, I believe, on tour with WCW, and we called the Steiner Brothers against, uh, I can't remember who it was, two of, the, uh, two of the Japanese tag team wrestlers. I shouldn't know them, but I don't. Uh, and that was a sensational match. It was so sensational. Tony Schiavone can't even remember the guys' names. But it was a sensational <laughs> tag team match, and JR and I called it. Uh, you know, a lot of things that Jim Ross and I called, uh, Ric Flair and uh, Sting in the first Clash of the Champions that JR and I called together was a, was a, a very memorable night and a lot of fun calling that match. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of those, those are just some of the things that stick out. But still to me, Hogan, Superplex, Big Boss Man off the cage, Madison Square Garden sold out. I'm on the MSG network. Uh, just uh, a year removed from being from the South was till the, the one one match to me that stands out more than any. Now, I don't want to kind of, you know, kill you there, but uh, I got to say it was Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Sasaki. Uh, Hase and Brothers. Sasaki, right, exactly. Thank you for that. See, I need to exactly, <laughs> exactly, and it was great, a tremendous match. Great too. match. Yep, it amazing. was a great match. It was an amazing match. It really was. Yeah. Now we're talking about some of your favorite matches, some of your favorite wrestlers, but you've been a partner with Dusty, who's you know a wrestling god, awesome wrestler, awesome announcer, uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan, Scott Hudson, Mike Tenay, one of our favorites, mm-hmm. Larry Zabisco. Who was your favorite? Oh, Jesse the Body Ventura. I can't forget him. Right. Um, who's your right. favorite partner, like announced partner? All right. I'm going to break it down this way. I get to ask this all the time. I'm going to break it down this way. I thought I did some of my best work with Jim Ross. I thought the early stuff that Jr. and oh, I did yeah. together was, was tremendous because uh, I don't think either one of us was either a play-by-play guy or a color guy. We were both just two re- – and Jr. was a big wrestling fan too. You know, I, he knows this. You guys know that. So here we are, two guys, big wrestling fans, being able to call the sport that we love. And I enjoyed, I thought some of that earlier stuff, I think I learned more about being a wrestling announcer by working with JR 
uh, than I did with anybody. Uh, I had, uh, I gained uh, a whole lot of respect and love for working with Gorilla Monsoon on the WWF Challenge for all those years. One of the great men in wrestling. Uh, and I'll never forget the time I had a chance to work with him. I thought it was wonderful being able to work with Jesse the Body Ventura because he was Jesse the Body Ventura, and he had made such a name for himself on the Saturday night's main event, and here I was working with him on all these pay-per-views. He did made me laugh. I love working with Scott Hudson. With a man I love more than, and I have a chance to work with Gordon Soley. I work with Larry Zabisco, who was tremendous. They all were great, and I all love work with them. But the man I love working with better than anybody else, only because I love this man, was Lord Alfred Hayes. Uh, Lord Alfred Hayes uh, was one of the most wonderful men ever to be in pro wrestling. And he is going to go down as my favorite guy to work with only because of the uh, friendship I had with him, the love I had for him, uh, and how much uh, I just appreciated and how good of a friend he became of mine in one year. Uh, What broke my heart was uh, he went on to live with his daughter uh, in Dallas and passed away, and I dropped out of touch with him, and he had died, and it wasn't like until two years later that I found out he passed away, and that's one of my big regrets in life. But uh, I had a chance to go over and work in London with Lord Alfred. We worked London. We worked Brussels. We worked Paris. uh, We worked... You know, that night we worked Madison Square Garden and the Boston Garden, uh, and I did some commentary with him. We got to be very good friends. So he's my favorite, only because he was my closest friend of all of them. Now we, we actually recently talked to Sean Mooney, and he said Lord Alfred Hayes was his favorite too. So Lord Alfred Hayes getting a lot of love lately on our show. Oh, one of the great – I'm telling you, you had to know the man to love him, and uh, I loved him, Absolutely. Now, as far as the podcast, obviously, what happened when on MLW, what would be your favorite episode that you've done so far? I mean, Havoc 90, 92, 93, 98. You talk about even Greed, the Greed pay-per-view. You go Great American yeah. Bash 88. So many great topics. What, what has been your favorite episode thus far? Well, I really enjoyed the one that's out now, the one that we did uh, that dropped uh, this past Monday, and that was the one talking about uh, Bash of the Beach 96. Uh, it's well, it's the most current I know, but it goes back and talks about this historic time in WCW and Hulk Hogan turned heel. Uh, that's probably my favorite episode. I also had we've had a couple of episodes, and we're going to have one more coming up soon, where I just kind of answer questions on Twitter uh, from the fans, and I kind of enjoy that too because I it uh, gets me telling stories, you know. Uh, I told, I've been telling my Klondike Bill stories based on the questions. And a lot of times the questions will pop up and listen, Conrad does not, uh, does not let, uh, clue me in on what questions he's going to ask me. So these are always off the cuff. And of course, uh, you know, there was a question asked about, uh, Paul White, the giant. And that reminded me of the time that Paul went into the back and used to go in the back and take crap in the announcer's dressing room and not flush it and leave it in there, and then we would go into our bathroom and see all this 
you know, and he would always leave a note for me. You know, I left you a surprise in the bathroom. And uh, so uh, those things, those uh, Twitter questions, uh, as diverse as they are and as varied as they are, brings up some great memories in the past. So I've enjoyed those as well. But I think overall the best one has been this Bash of the Beach one that we recently did because it had to do with, uh, as you guys had said, uh, uh, Johnny, we talked about this, uh, that Hogan turn being one of the really the historic nights of WCW. Perhaps the greatest night in the history of WCW. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to charge you for that, $1.50 every time you say it. <laughs> now you're stealing Mean Jeans gimmick with doing that. So now we'll, uh, we'll just completely we'll, – we'll wrap it up here by coming back to the big event this Sunday in Dallas, Texas, the What Happened When Live, focusing on your year in the WWF, featuring a special guest in Bruce Pritchard. I mean, we w- wish you nothing but the best of luck. I'm sure this is going to be the first of many, but please, Tony, it's been absolutely unbelievable. Before we get to the plug, the last question we like to ask is, when you close the book on wrestling, which you had already done, but now you opened it up again, but what is it that you want the fans to remember about Tony Schiavone in professional wrestling and what you brought to the world or the sport of pro wrestling? I think, uh, Chad, and I think we've touched on this throughout this interview here, is that he really loved it, truly loved it. And when he called the matches, it's because he loved it. Uh, Jim Crockett told me when I first started, respect the business. And I always tried to do that. I always tried to make every wrestler seem as a superstar as they could. But I think what I want people to remember is that I was just like them. I was a big-time wrestling fan that was very fortunate to be able to call matches. So I want to be remembered as just another one of those fans. And we wish you nothing but the best again. And, Tony, WHW Live, get out to Dallas, Texas on July 9th, and please share with the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling any of the other places that they can find what's going on in the world of Tony Schiavone. That's exactly. I do want to say that you can get tickets online at WHW Live. That's WHWLive.com if you're in the Dallas area. And like you said, Chad, uh, and, John, we hope to be doing it. This is kind of a test run for me. We hope to be doing it, you know, in more different venues around the country as uh, as the months go by. Chad, John, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. It means a lot. Congratulations on the success of what you've been doing as well, and hopefully we'll talk again, okay? Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.